Now, I invite you to turn with me to the the five-chapter book of James. Today, we begin a study of this most interesting book. And we'll get no further in the text than verse 1. I'll read it for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now this morning, we'll consider three things about this letter, this book. Its author, its recipients, and its theme. First of all, its author. James, we're told. But which James? There were several James in the New Testament. And among the twelve disciples, there were two James, weren't there? James, the son of Alphaeus and James, the brother of John. But we don't believe that either of those is the writer of this letter. The early church identifies this James as the brother of our Lord Jesus, who later became one of the chief leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And in my studies, I could find no good reason for rejecting this identification and many good reasons for it, accepting it. So I'm going to continue on this assumption that the author is indeed the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first mention of this, James, is found in Matthew 13, 54 to 57. Jesus has come into his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up and where people knew the family well. It's a small town. There are no secrets in Nazareth. And as he's teaching in the synagogue, the townspeople were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. This is the James that we believe writes this letter. What a privilege to be the younger brother of the Lord Jesus. Any of you have older brothers? Let me see your hand if you have an older brother. Oh, many of you have older brothers. Can you imagine this, that your older brother is the son of God? That means that growing up, though you often complained, he never did. Though you often were selfish, he never was. And though at times you were lazy, never him. Think of the things that James never saw growing up. He never saw his older brother disobey his parents or talk back to them. He never saw him lose his temper and speak words that he later would regret. He never saw him impatient, unkind, Lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, never saw him neglecting his duties, all the chores, always done right away, thoroughly, with a right heart attitude. It was a perfect older brother. But think as well, all the things that he did see growing up, perfect kindness, self-control, love for God and man. 
And this means that James himself would have been on the receiving end of much self-denying love from his older brother. Letting him have the bigger cookie. Sharing his toys with him. Perhaps even his place on the computer. Letting him go first. Whatever it was, he saw perfection in his older brother. And yet for all these privileges, James and his brother His his brothers did not believe in Jesus. John chapter 7. We meet them sneering at their older brother Jesus in in unbelief of his majestic claims. The Feast of Tabernacles draws near and they tell him, well, you ought to leave and take your show to Jerusalem where all the people are. After all, no one wanting to become a public figure stays in secret. So go show yourself to the world. And John inserts his own commentary at this point. And he says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. The blinding power of sin in the human heart. Can you see it? You can grow up with Jesus. You can live with him. You can share the same house and family with the son of God and still fail to believe in him, still fail to see glory in him such that you would embrace him as your own Lord and Savior. To James, he was just his older brother with some weird ideas. Once when Jesus was ministering so much that he did not even stop to eat food. Some came and told his family and they went to lay hold on him and to bring him home forcibly, if necessary, saying he's out of his mind. Yes, James and his brothers believe that the strain of his work had left him mentally unstable. Their unbelief. They were going to go down and rescue him before he further embarrassed the family name. So we see James In unbelief, we see his embarrassment at his older brother, Jesus, and we can be sure he felt guilty often before his older brother, Jesus. Jesus, perfect obedience would have exposed his own disobedience. Jesus, perfect love of others would have exposed his own primary love of self. Jesus, humility would show forth his pride. All of Jesus' life and words then were like a spotlight in the night, shining upon James, pointing out his sin, his darkness. For James, the light not only came into the world, the light came into his family. And he loved darkness instead of light because his own deeds were evil. As Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. James' heart was constantly under exposure of the Son of God living with him. But at some point, James was born again by the Holy Spirit and was brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus and trusted in his older brother for eternal life. You know, I think it would take more faith for James than less to trust in him for eternal life. 
First Corinthians 15:7, we find the crucified Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, to more than 500 brothers at once, then he appeared to James. Some people think that his conversion perhaps took place in in the context of the, the resurrection, that when his own brother appeared to him. At least it was confirmed. I don't believe uh, that Jesus showed himself except but to the believers. So I believe his conversion took place earlier. But by the time of the resurrection, James is a believer and he he joins himself to the Jerusalem church and he went on to become one of the prominent leaders of the church in Jerusalem. When the council at Jerusalem was held in Acts chapter 15, it's James who's found in a prominent leadership position. And it's largely through his uh, discernment and insight into the scripture and into what was happening that he worked out a peaceful and satisfactory solution as to the dispute about Gentiles and circumcision. You can read that in Acts 15. Paul says in the book of Galatians that after His conversion, this is the Apostle Paul, when he was conversion, he spent three years in Arabia and then he went up to Jerusalem and spent 15 days with Peter. And he says in Galatians 119, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And he goes on to speak of James in chapter two as having the reputation as being one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, a leader among the elders In that church. He's called James the just. James the righteous one. He was more than a preacher. He was one who practiced what he preached. And church history says he was killed for the faith. Martyred for the faith in 62 AD. Josephus says he was falsely accused by the Sanhedrin. Who sentenced him to death by stoning. Perhaps that was true. But for some reason he was not stoned. Instead, Clement of Alexandria says that the Pharisees goaded the Jews to throw him off the roof of the temple. History says he survived the fall, and so he was beaten to death with a club. However he died, he died trusting in the Lord Jesus. This is the man who writes this letter that's found in our Bibles, inspired by the Holy Spirit. A man who grew up in the same family as Jesus, as an unbeliever, as an unconverted man. Who was later converted, became a respected pillar and leader of the church in Jerusalem and later a martyr for Christ's sake. And so he's well known in the Christian world, the early Christian world. No need to to have a long introduction. James will, will suffice. Now, notice this great man's view of himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How would we identify ourselves if we were James writing a letter? James, the younger brother of Jesus. I mean, if you had that going for you, wouldn't you put that in there and let people know about it? We're name droppers, aren't we? We like to drop names of famous people that 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 we know in some intimate or close way. I recently heard uh, someone say that 
their sister was a friend of the aunt of Michael Phelps. Well, you, you put that all together, you see. Uh, and and we, we like to do that sort of thing, don't we? I recently had a young lad in this church tell me that his best friend was a direct descendant of Tom, uh, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, that's nothing. Did you know that I'm a direct descendant of the man who built the ark? <laughs> I believe his name was Noah. We're name droppers. We like to, to say, if we know someone famous, if you're writing to Christians, wouldn't it be nice to say, I, I was the younger brother of the Lord Jesus himself. No, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what James is telling us in that? That it's better to be Christ's servant than to be Christ's younger brother. It's better to be related to Christ by grace than by nature. And is that not what Jesus himself said when his family finally got to him to lay hold of him and take him home, thinking he had gone mad? Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Better to be one of those than one of those. Far better to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, putting his words into practice, than to even be the younger brother of Jesus of Nazareth. So we would say James, the younger brother of the Lord Jesus, or, or James, the leader and pillar of the church in Jerusalem. No, James, the servant, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, because any position that he has in the church of Jesus Christ, he has as a servant of God and Christ. He is simply on an errand for his master. It's all about him, not about me. Now, the word here for servant is the word doulos. It's a, it's a bond slave. A slave was the property and the possession of his master. He didn't belong to himself. He was property owned by another. He had no rights. It was not his to decide what he did. As he showed up for work in the morning, he didn't say, you know, I think I'm going to do it a little differently than you said. No, it was, here I am. What do you want me to do? And they obeyed. Whatever the master commanded, he must do. That's the word James uses to describe himself. A slave. It's how he sees himself, how he thinks about himself. As he wakes up in the morning, who am I? As he looks in the mirror, there stands a slave of Jesus Christ. I am not my own. I am property of another who has bought me with his own blood. Therefore, whatever he says must go today. And so James stands before the word of God in the posture of a servant. Whatever Jesus says, I will do. Whatever God says, I will do. Oh, he once was his own man. He loved, he lived the way he wanted. He did what he wanted when he wanted. And he disregarded God's word whenever it didn't fit in with his own fancy. But no longer he is now a slave possessed by Jesus 
And he's unconditionally surrendered to him. And he's a willing slave. You see that. There's, there's no slavish spirit and drudgery in his, his service to Christ. He's happy to be such. He finds perfect freedom, as we'll see, in the law of his master. He finds joy and satisfaction. He is honored to be the slave of Christ. You remember the Queen of Sheba got wind of of the greatness of Solomon's wisdom and wealth. And she came a long distance to check it out for herself. Could any man really be that wise and wealthy? And she came and she looked and she, she lost her breath. She was amazed. She was astounded. And she says, the record I, the witness I heard was true. The half has not been told How happy are your men? How happy are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom? And now a greater than Solomon has come. And how happy are his servants who wait upon him? So what about you? Are you a slave of God and Christ or still a slave to self and sin? You see, we will never welcome the words of James unless we take our stand beside him as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's coming to us with the words not of himself, but of his master. Yes, he comes as a slave. Oh, but a slave of the king of kings. And so his letter comes with all the authority of heaven. And what a change, not only in his view of himself, he now sees himself as a slave of Christ, but what a change in his view of Jesus. He is no longer his mentally unstable older brother with some weird ideas. No, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he refers to him. Lord, the title for God, for deity. He sees his older brother as God in the flesh with absolute authority. He is Jesus, that name that means savior, for he will save his people from their sins. And he has saved James. He is Christ, that long awaited conquering king. This is the one we've been told of. This is the one who was promised who would bring salvation to his people and reign forever and ever. It's a converted James who writes this letter. Different view of himself, a different view of Christ. Well, who are the recipients? Who is he writing to? And very briefly, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Not to one local church or individual as Paul's Many epistles are often addressed to to a certain church in a certain geographical place or a certain person, Timothy or Titus. It's not that, but it's rather a general epistle to all the people of God scattered all over the world. Here they're called the 12 tribes. That's a name for Israel. And here it's used figuratively as elsewhere of the universal church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles for the mystery that was unfolded in the New Testament is that Jews and Gentiles are found together in Jesus fold in Jesus church that Paul calls the Israel of God in Galatians chapter six and verse 16. 
And Galatians 3.29 says that all now, all who belong to Christ, be they Jew or Gentile, all who belong to Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the words of Peter, they are the chosen people. They are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the peculiar people of God. Yes, the people of God, Jew and Gentile, comprise the twelve tribes. And they are scattered among the nations. The people of God are no longer found in one locality, in one uh, nation, political nation. But now they're scattered among all the nations. Uh, The scattering, the dispersion that took place for Israel back in the 8th century B.C. as they went away into Assyrian captivity and were scattered. And then in the 6th century, Judah, the the southern kingdom, was scattered in the Babylonian captivity. And then in the early chapters of Acts, we find another scattering as the persecution drove Christians all over the Middle East. This is a letter to all the people of God. Scattered among the nations. It seems it's one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest New Testament letter that we have. And it is true that at this early point, Christ's church was comprised mostly of converted Jews. That the great surge of of believers from the Gentiles had not yet taken place. So that even in a literal sense, most of the Christians at this time were probably of the stock of Abraham the tribes of Israel. So here we have this letter from James, the younger brother of Jesus, written to all the people of God scattered everywhere. And in God's good providence, this this letter has found us, the scattered people of God, scattered here throughout the United States. And we have this word. And what James says, God says. So may we receive it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth. The word of God, the author, its recipients. Now its theme. What is the theme? What's the main point of the letter? What is hammered home five chapters long? Is there anything? Some have said it's just a scattering of smattering of 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 teachings. The more I read it, the more I see its cohesiveness and its its unity. There is a theme to the book of James. What is it? Well, it's not what we might expect or want. I thought of what I would like to have in a letter from James, the brother of Jesus. I would call this bestseller Growing Up with Jesus, a close-up look at the Son of God by his younger brother, James. And in this book, we'd find all sorts of stories about growing up with Jesus and, and what happened during those secret, silent years of which we have nothing. In the word of God. But that's not what the book is about at all. Not one incident is mentioned. Rather to read the book is to learn. That James is in love with holiness. The pursuit of holiness is a book. uh, Written by the modern author Jerry Bridges. An excellent book. But that could just as well be the title. Of this book from James. The pursuit of holiness. It's a passionate call to holiness, to holy living. It calls for holiness in trials and in temptations. Holiness in relationships with people. Holiness in your finances and in your business dealings. 
holiness in your charity and giving to others, holiness in your use of the tongue, holiness in your attitudes and in your desires, holiness in praying and in repenting, holiness in the way you think about yourself, in the way you think about your brothers and sisters and speak about them, holiness when you don't get what you want, holiness in your relationship to the world. Holiness in the way that you plan for the future. Holy in your use of material wealth and possessions. Holy when you're in trouble. Holy when you're happy. Holy when you're sick. These are some of the topics that James takes up in this book. Now, if you take that word from me and you say, okay, let me read James this afternoon. And you say, I'm expecting to find the word holy or holiness. Mentioned often, you'll be disappointed because it's not found once in the book. Never do you read the word holy or holiness uh, unless it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that is even in there itself. It's not there. But the essence of holiness is everywhere in the book. You see, for James, holiness is being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. For James, holiness is living the whole of your life in obedience to the laws of God. For James, holiness is being mature and complete in your likeness to Jesus Christ. For James, holiness is a very practical thing. It's an all-embracive thing. It's not something that you do just for a couple hours on Sunday or for a few minutes every day in your quiet times. Oh, it includes that. But it includes all that you do. Every day, all day, Sunday through Saturday, nothing accepted. Peter's words could be the subtitle of this book of James in 1 Peter 1.15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And James unpacks the all you do. And he shows us what holiness looks like. In all you do. There's nothing that you did last week. There's nothing you will do this week that does not come under the demands of holiness in your life. You're to do it all in a holy way. That's James' theme. He's a very practical man. He wants us to see what holiness looks like. And so he spells it out for us. In many ways, it's like the Proverbs. Or many commentaries point out It's very like his older brother, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount. Very plain, applied truths from first to last. It's holiness applied. It's truth for life. It's practical religion. Did I say James was in love with holiness? I mean, it was his passion, both for himself and for his hearers. He's passionate about having us live a holy life. This letter is this passionate plea for our all-out pursuit of complete holiness. That's his all-consuming aim in this letter. Now let's pause and ask why. Why is James so passionate about holiness? Why is it his aim, his theme of this book? Well, because God is so passionate about your holiness. The grand purpose of each member of the Trinity in saving sinners is their holiness. 
I want to walk you through the Trinity and ask that question. What is the grand purpose for which God, the triune God, has saved you? Number one, why did God the Father choose to save you? Turn up Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Because we're not left to guess. Yes, we say, why me? There's nothing good in me as to why he chose me. But what was the end to which he chose me? To what end did he choose to save you? Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Did you see that? He chose to save you, not because you were holy, but to make you holy. The grand end for which he chose to save you was to make you holy and blameless in his sight. Not in the sight of your neighbor who can only see the outer man. But in the sight of God who can look through and through your thoughts and motivations and words about to be spoken. That you might be holy and blameless in his sight. That's why God the Father chose you. In election, God aims at your ultimate holiness to have you bear his likeness. And so to reflect the glory of his own holiness. Romans 8 and verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. That's very similar to what to electiness and choosiness. He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, God chose and predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that the son might have many other brothers who are just like him. Bearing his likeness to the glory and praise of God. So don't miss the end for which God chose you, dear Christian. It was to make you holy and blameless in his sight. Second, why did the Son of God die for you? Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, just before the book of Hebrews And Philemon, we have Titus in chapter 2, speaking of the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And for James, that's. Holiness, eager to live a holy life. That's the, the, the meaning of holiness in our Bibles. To, to redeem from sin and wickedness, to purify for himself a people who are eager to live holy lives. Christians, don't miss the great end for which Jesus shed his blood for you. Don't stop short of his aim. Don't say, you know, Jesus died for me to save me from hell. That's not the end. No, he he died. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all wickedness, from all doing of evil, that he might purify, cleanse us from our sins and so have us to be a people who are very eager to do what's good. 
Yes, salvation from hell is part. But if you end with that, you'll take your stand with so many that don't have a clue that Jesus died to make us holy. It's not just the penalty of sin that he saves us from. His name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Not just its penalty, but from the very act of sinning. It's power and one day it's presence. Jesus died to make us holy. John Flavel says, so in love is Christ with holiness that he will buy it for us with his own blood. Why did Jesus die for you that you might be holy? And thirdly, why did God the Spirit give you a new birth and come to live in your heart? Turn back to Ezekiel. Because the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us why the Spirit would give us a new heart in the new birth and why He would come to live within us. Here in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, the promise of the new covenant is this. God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's holiness. To keep his decrees and to be careful to keep his laws. That's what James means by holiness. And so the new birth of the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. It it implants a new nature. It implants a whole new principle. The new creation that we are is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24 says. The Holy Spirit in the new birth implants A new desire that will be content with nothing less than likeness to Jesus Christ. Should we be surprised that it is the Holy Spirit who lives within you for the purpose of making you holy? He brings into reality the grand end for which the Father chose you and for which the Son purchased you and died for you to make you holy. So he works in you to make you willing and to make you able to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Philippians 2.13 And we who with unveiled faces all contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. He's the resident sanctifier who lives in you to cleanse you and to change your life and to make it like the Lord Jesus. So wherever the Holy Spirit dwells, he produces holy living. That's the proof of his indwelling presence, not speaking in tongues or any other charismatic gift. Simply this, the proof that the Holy Spirit lives here is a holy life. And so the whole triune God combine in the work of salvation to make you holy. Holiness is the proof that you are chosen by God the Father. Holiness is the proof that Jesus Christ shed his blood and atoned for your sins. Holiness is the proof that the Spirit of God has given you a new birth and now lives within you. It's the great aim of all the saving activity of the triune God. Your holiness. To have you like him 
brings him great glory. And that's why James is so passionate about holiness in his letter. He would have us rejoice and thank God for any progress that we see in holiness. He would have us weep because of our lack of it. He'll tell us that you ought to be weeping instead of laughing. He would have us confess and repent of our lack of of holiness due to our sins of omission as well as commission. He would have us to hunger and thirst for greater measures of holiness. He would have us aim at it every day. He would have us discipline ourselves to it. He would have us pray for it and pursue it, whatever the cost, to be satisfied with nothing less than total holiness, perfect likeness to Jesus He would have us persevere in the chase until we see Christ and are made completely like him. As we study this book week by week, we'll see that James doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't sugarcoat the message. He doesn't sand off the rough edges of God's truths to make it more palatable to the hearers. He just gives it to us straight. He doesn't dilute the demands of God to make them manageable by man, to make the commands of God doable by us. Rather, he holds up the law of God in all of its demands. And here's the test, whether we really understand what James is saying. Week by week, as we open the book and we look at what James has written by the Spirit, If we really get what he's saying, then we will be sent running every week to the Lord Jesus Christ for pardon and for power. Lord, I haven't done that. And Lord, only you can make me do that. Holiness in James is impossible without the supernatural power of God. It takes the Holy Spirit to live the holy life. And so this letter is loaded with commands. If you've got an aversion to commands, you won't want to read this book. There's, there's 50 imperatives. That's the mood of command in the letter. There's only 108 verses, and there are 50 commands. That, that's almost a command for every other verse. It, it's loaded with commands, and every one of those commands sets forth your duty. That means what you owe to God, your obligation. Now, we live in a lawless age with an anti-law attitude boiling to the surface. And it's in the church as well. It's seen in a dislike for duty. We don't like to be told what we should do. Just tell us what Jesus has done. The Christian doesn't run from duty, but to it. Why? Because he wants to please the Lord who bought him. He receives Christ as his prophet to teach him the will of God. And so every disciple and servant is taught to obey everything that Christ has commanded. Matthew 28, 20. Every disciple comes before the Lord in his word and says, teach me how to think. Teach me how to live. Teach me how to speak. It's impossible to think of a book of the Bible that is more relevant to the current situation that we live in. American Christianity is a shadow of the reality taught in Scripture. So many claiming to be Christians, yet no regard for God's law, no pursuit after holy living, no attention to duty. Did you know that recent polls found 83% of American adults call themselves Christians? 
But as for cheating, lying, adultery, gluttony, gossip, sex before marriage, music, entertainment, there is little or no difference between those who claim to be Christians and those who don't. Christian researcher George Barna actually found recently that the divorce rate among conservative Christians is much higher, much higher than that among atheists and agnostics. Now, he took a lot of heat for that uh, find and publishing it, but he stands by his data and responds, quote, we rarely find substantial differences between the moral behavior of Christians and non-Christians. That's what I mean when I say that I can't think of a book of the Bible that would be more suited to the needs of our day when American Christianity is only a faint shadow of biblical Christianity, when the religion of the day is not the religion that God our Father accepts. James 1 and verse 26. Loose and lazy living abounds in the church and is often justified by teachings from the church, such as the carnal Christian theory, easy believism, health, wealth and prosperity teaching, positive thinking and other distortions of the gospel of Christ. There's so many light and easy brands of Christianity today. Have you seen that? So people don't like this, this brand that we have. It's. It's too much about holiness, too much about holy living, about commandment keeping, about our duty. We're looking for Christianity light where the demands of holiness and God's holy law are drowned out beneath much other teaching that is found, yes, in the Bible, but does not mention our sins and God's holy law. And I find it interesting and encouraging that James faced the same tendency in the first century. He has to write these things because he faced it in his day. Not 83% claiming to be Christians, but that those who did, that among them there was this lot who had a religion that was other than what God himself has prescribed and especially so in the way of holy living. So James is not a book for those who want a nice, respectable religion and nothing more. Something that will not be too demanding, uh, just enough to salve the conscience and to appear good in the eyes of our neighbor. If that's what you want in religion, this book's not for you. Don't read it. Don't come close to it. But if, as many of you do, If you love God, if you are amazed that he would send his son for you. If you are struck that the Lord Jesus would be a sin offering in your place, that he would take the punishment on the cross that you deserved and that he would give you a new heart and put his spirit within you. And now you want to please him. You want to serve him. You want to do the things that make his heart glad. Then here is the book and here is the way. And oh, by the way, there is no other brand of saving religion than this one. All the rest are a farce. If your religion does not have in it the pursuit of holiness, I want to tell you as lovingly and yet as bluntly as James says it, that your religion is worthless. Chapter 126. 
That if you have a faith in God that does not produce holy living, it is useless, dead, and will never save you. James 2, 14 through 26. Religion that does not make you holy is not saving religion. It's damning religion. It does not come down from above, but comes up from below. James chapter 3, 15 and following. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so what James writes, God writes. If you have issues with James, you have issues with God. And so may God the Spirit bring this word home to our hearts and work in us the very holiness that it commands. Christian, let me close by saying and being clear on this. Christian, this is how you are to live the Christian life. This is not the way to be saved. It is rather the way all saved people endeavor and pursue to live and know something of in their lives. And that distinction could not be more crucial. Don't confuse them. A holy life is not the way to be saved. There was only one holy life that was lived perfectly enough to satisfy the Father. And that was the older brother of James and Nazareth, who was God made flesh. Born of a woman, born under the law that he might fulfill and keep that law. And so redeem us sinners who were lawbreakers. No, if you try to get right with God and be saved by obeying God's commands and being holy, uh, you'll fail. And in your attempt, you'll be obnoxious to God because you are rebelling against his only way of becoming righteous. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in him and receiving his holiness put to your account. Receive by faith alone. No, a holy life is not the way to be saved. It's the life that all saved people live, albeit imperfectly. So what about us? Are we passionate in our pursuit of holiness? Are we passionate about perfect likeness to Jesus Christ? Obedience to his word. The obedience of a servant of a slave, of God and of the Lord Jesus? Or have we settled for something less? Have we settled for status quo Christianity, the way it is among the 83%? Are we happy with that? To have a name that we live but are dead, to have a form of religion but to deny the power of true religion? I spent some time on vacation reading through the book of James. And I thought before I started that I was pursuing holiness. But I want to tell you, I'm not just preaching words when I say every week, if we get it right, we'll be running to Jesus for pardon, for forgiveness, because we have come short. We do not pursue holiness as God is pursuing holiness in our lives. And we will have to run to Jesus for power. Lord, you know my weakness. You know my tongue. You know these things about me. You must help me. I am weak. And you know that's just where James wants us. He wants us before our master. 
holding Christ in our hands on our knees before the Father, pleading his blood for our forgiveness and his blood for our power. Brothers and sisters, there's still more of of holiness to pursue. There's still more of likeness to Jesus Christ to be achieved in this life. For the glory of his name, let's make his aim our aim. Let's make his passion our passion as we come to this book. It's all about the pursuit of holiness. Evidently, Charles Wesley had a pursuit of holiness. Number 460. He tells us about it and he he puts these words into our mouth. And if you can sing them, then sing them. The last verse, finish then thy new creation. Oh, Holy Spirit, you've made me a new creature. Now finish it. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. I'm not satisfied with imperfection. I want the perfect restoration into the likeness of Christ. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before thee lost in wonder, love and praise because that's where all the praise for any inch of progress in holiness rests upon our great God and Savior and Holy Spirit. Let's stand as we sing then. Love divine, all loves excelling, the second tune of 460. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving James out of his unbelief and skepticism. Thank you for putting your spirit in him and inspiring him with these words that we intend, God willing, to give ourselves to. Give us the heart to come as slaves who realize we've been bought with the blood of Jesus and to present ourselves each week and each day before your word and to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And that for love, that for gratitude, for that greatest gift of all, giving us your son. Lord, we were made for holiness. It's what we were made for. It's, it's what we were created for. It's what we fell from. And is it not what? You have saved us too. And you've put a new spirit in us, a spirit that refuses to be satisfied with anything but perfect likeness to Jesus. And come and give us the desires of our new hearts. Make us more like him. We confess, O Lord, our sins, our shortcomings, that we always come short. And we look forward to the day when we'll see our Lord Jesus and we'll be made like him. And even now help us who are looking forward to that day to purify ourselves even as he is pure. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.